you take your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn open to the book of Genesis. As we close out this sermon series on Abraham's faith, we're this morning in Genesis chapter 22. You've been in good hands the past number of weeks with Pastor Kevin walking you up through Genesis chapter 21. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22 here this morning and close out talking about Abraham's faith and seeing what we can learn from that. This morning we're going to read verses 1 through 14. And let's pray before we read God's Word this morning and hear it preached. Our Father, we do pray that You would take this Word and that You would speak to us as Your children. I pray that we would know that we have heard from our Father on high. That You would encourage us in Christ, that You would shape us in Christ. That You might even work salvation in this room among Your people. And that You would receive the glory and the honor and the praise. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is one of what has to be called one of the most difficult passages in all of the Scriptures. Uh, it's surprising. It's surprising as you're reading through the book of Genesis and you get to this point, especially this point in the life of Abraham, and you have this call that goes out to Abraham. And as surprising as it is for you and I to read it, it to be even more surprising for Abraham to endure it and to be called to it. What I want to do this morning is try and wrestle with that in this passage, what is happening here. But I think to help us, it, it helps to kind of zoom out first, especially because this is the last week that we are looking at the life of Abraham and the faith of Abraham. So I want to first zoom out and then I want to zoom back in and work our way through this passage. So we're going to do this in four ways this morning. I want to first look at friendship with God. And then second, we'll look at puzzlement with God as we see it here in the text. And third, expectations with God. And then fourth, provision with God. So first, I want to zoom out and look at friendship with God. Abraham is a unique figure in the Bible for many reasons. He is the father of the faith. He is the father of what will become the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. But maybe what is most unique about Abraham is how God refers to him and what God calls him. We see it in three different texts in the Scriptures. The first place is in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. The, the second is in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. And the third is then in James, where James in the New Testament will pick this up. But let me just read you Isaiah 41, verse 8. God says this, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, James will speak of Abraham when he's discussing Abraham's faith, and he will say Abraham was called a friend of God. And this is unique. There's no one else in all of the Scriptures that is called by God his friend. And that makes this passage even more difficult in many ways. This is an amazing thought as you think about Abraham and we think about his life. Abraham was born into this world just like all of us. He was born into this world, as Paul will say, as a child of wrath. He was fallen. He was born as a child of Adam just like all of us. There was no love for God in his heart. There was no grace that marked his person. There was no faith that was his. He dwelled in a pagan land with 
people that worshipped pagan gods, and no doubt he worshipped pagan gods himself. He's an idolater. And then in a moment, God calls him from the Ur of the Chaldees, and in that moment, he is transformed from a pagan idolater into the father of the covenant people of God. He becomes the recipient of God's grace and of God's mercy. He goes in a moment from an enemy of God to a friend of God. That's a, an honor that not even the cherubim and the seraphim have arisen to. He's a friend of God. It's a strange thing to think about. I have need of friends. I need friends. I need people around me. I need people who encourage me when I'm discouraged, when I get down. I need people who support me when I'm lacking strength. I need people who will make me laugh. I need people who will correct me when I'm wrong. I too often hurt people around me and do damage to my own person, so I need people who I trust, that will say a word of rebuke to me when I'm doing that. People that I know that are for me and will give me the benefit of the doubt, who will not be too quick to judge me or condemn me. People that will allow me when I'm wrestling with things in my heart to talk it through with them and work it through with them. People that will challenge me and bring out the best in me. I need friends. But God has no such need. And Abraham is called his friend. There's an intimacy in that term, isn't there? There's a love in that term. There is a trust that is in that term. He had to give his heart. We could say it this way, when you think about friendship, you could say, well, Abram had to give his heart to God, and if we can say it in the same way, God gave his heart to Abraham. They're friends. And that makes a difficult passage all the more difficult. I want to look at that, look at the puzzlement with God here in this passage. The passage begins with a command from God to his friend Abraham, and he says to him, go forth. That's a unique phrase. It's only twice. Twice does it occur here in the book of Genesis. You'll remember the first time was back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, when God calls forth Abraham, and he says, go forth. And he tells him to go forth from his country and from his people, that is his father's house. And now here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, the second time he calls him to go forth. Go forth, he says, and take your son. The commands and the, the call or the test are similar. They are quite similar. The command in Genesis 12 is the first time that God speaks to Abraham. The call in Genesis 22 is the last time that we have God speaking to Abraham. Both speeches call for Abraham to go on a journey. Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, if you will, they kind of serve like, like bookends on 
the life of Abraham's faith. In the first call, Abraham was required to sacrifice his country and his family and his past. In the final call, Abraham was required to sacrifice his country, his family, and his future. It's the triple whammy. Abraham, you are to offer a human sacrifice. But not just a human sacrifice. You are to sacrifice your son. And not just your son, but the son of promise through whom all the promises that I've made you are going to come through. Whammy, whammy, whammy. And yet, when Abraham hears this command from his friend, there's no hesitancy. Actions quick paced, we read in verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. No waiting. He saddled his donkey. He took two young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood. He arose and he went to the place God had told him. There's no questioning. The will of God was a law for him. He hears it and he simply does it. And Abraham travels to that area of Moriah. It takes him three days. The, the text remains silent. It doesn't tell us at all what occurs during those three days. What was the conversation like? Did they walk in silence? Did they discuss what was going to happen on Mount Moriah? Nothing. I think we can assume that those are three days of gut-wrenching thought for Abraham. There's no distractions, there's no work, there's no play, there's just Mount Moriah on the horizon, and he knows what awaits him there. There's puzzlement here. This isn't easy to understand. For Abraham to obey the command would mean forfeiting all that God promised him. But to disobey would mean going against what God had said. Martin Luther, the great reformer, commenting upon this passage, said this. He said, when we are sure about God's will and believe that He has commanded what we have under consideration, the matter must be undertaken, not with trepidation or hesitation, but with the utmost eagerness, even if one had to expose oneself to a thousand dangers or to death itself. But Lord, your will is so hard here. I'm thankful for the long tradition that Reformed churches have and Reformed theology has for sending missionaries out into the field. We could go all the way back to Geneva and John Calvin in Geneva. It was a, it was a mission center. They were sending missionaries to Brazil and missionaries all over Europe, especially though to France. From 1555 to 1563, the, what are called the Company of Pastors there in Geneva kept a log of the pastor missionaries that they sent into France. And during those seven years, we have a log where they kept track of 88 men, pastor missionaries that they sent into France. But we know that that wasn't the full allotment of all the pastor missionaries that they sent into France. 
No, experts, some conjecture that in one year, in one year they sent as many as 165 pastor missionaries into France, but they didn't record their names. And you know why? Because death awaited these men in Roman Catholic France. And so they were trying to keep on the down low some of their names and hide some of their names so that they weren't out there because many of these men wouldn't survive a week in Roman Catholic France, let alone two weeks or a month or a year. And yet they kept going. In 1555, at the beginning of pastors being sent into France, it's believed that there was one organized Reformed church in all of France. Seven years later, it's estimated that there were 2,150 congregations with around 3 million members in France. The question is, what sent these men in? Why would you go knowing that you might not live a week or two weeks or a month or six months? It was the preaching they heard in Geneva. They had heard the will of God, that He desires that none shall perish. So they went. When you know His will, you go. When you hear His command, you obey. But this command seems especially hard. How can God will this? That blows every circuit in our head, and it should. It's meant to. I think it's here, at least in part. I can make up a word. I think this account is inscripturated here. At least in part, because it is the most extreme of examples in the life of the most esteemed of God's people. So that you and I might know that when dark providences come into our life, when the hard commands come into our life, that our faith doesn't totter. It doesn't have to. Because it came into the life of God's friend, Abraham. Much harder providence than most of us will ever endure. But it's precisely here, isn't it, when we don't understand the providence of God that we must understand the heart behind the providence. It's here that when we don't understand the will of God, that we must understand and look to the heart behind the will. God asks us to trust Him in all things, especially when we don't understand. Abraham was His friend. He asks if this of him not to punish him, not because God is capricious or ruthless or mean-spirited. God's not tempting him. He's testing him. There's quite a difference. Testing comes from our Father. Tempting comes from our adversary, from our enemy. James tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The Father tries Abraham's faith. 
He tries it. He doesn't tempt him. What does a friend do? A friend nurtures with you and I and brings out the best in us. That which is most lovely in us, that which is most beautiful in us, that which is best about us, he brings out or she brings out. God as a friend does that here with Abraham. He's nurturing greater faith. He's nurturing greater trust. He's nurturing greater love and devotion. Hardest of tests is the greatest of blessings because they will bear the most fruit. God always blesses His friends. And the extent to which He blesses His friends has no end. He loves them to the end. And that leads to our third point. That was expectation with God. Our expectation of God and God's expectation of us. Abraham sets out. He is able to set out because he has great expectations of God. He can go because he trusts God. He knows his God. He knows him as his friend. And so he has great expectations of trust with him. And so he goes. But it's not just his actions. We also see it in Abraham's words. He trusts in the goodness of God, that God will show him goodness. Isaac questions Abraham in verse 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He has already alluded to his expectation that God will provide when he says to the young men who were with him in verse 5, when he leaves them and he goes off with Isaac, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. We'll come back. He has the expectation that he's coming back with Isaac. The writer of Hebrews, in that great chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11, says that Abraham offered up his son because, quote, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He knew God. He knew what his God was like. And he knew and trusted that his God was working this for his good and would provide. That is the right expectation to have. He knows God's character. He's as we sing, he's proved himself over and over. We didn't have it this year. Uh, because of COVID, but each year the Presbyterian Church in America has a national assembly, what we call our general assembly, where all the pastors and representative ruling elders from each congregation based on attendance are supposed to gather together and we spend a week together debating and discussing different things that then affect the entire denomination. And most people don't show up, uh, wish more showed up, but uh, we will have 12, 1,300 pastors and elders in that room. And when you get a bunch of pastors and elders in a room together, especially those pastors, they can have the, the gift of gab, and you know, there's that old joke about the, the boy that is sitting in the sanctuary with his father and... The preacher takes off his wristwatch and he 
takes it off and he lays it on the top of the pulpit and the boy looks to his father and he says, Dad, what does that mean? And the father says, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Pastors have the gift of gab, most. And so at General Assembly, there is a light up front. You are only given a certain amount of time to speak. And once you have gone over that time, that light goes off and they cut off your microphone. There are about 15 microphones scattered through the room. And different men will get up and they will make well-reasoned arguments. Some of them, some will get up and make passionate pleas. Some will open the Bible and feel like it's an opportunity to preach to 1,200 people for the first time in their lives. Some will make jokes and try and put everybody at ease before they press home some point. But more often than not, they're cut off because they've gone over their allotted time. It was not too long ago, there was one of our fathers in the faith. I watched him as he walked up and got in line at one of the microphones on an issue that we were debating. And when his turn came to the microphone, they called upon him. And he said, I'm for this motion. And then he sat down. It's his way of saying, I'm behind this. You can trust this. You say, well, what hubris? What pride? A man get up and say, I'm for this, and think other men in the room will be one to the argument because he said he was for it. But you see, he had every right. Because his character has been proved over the years. He's a man that's well-respected, that's known to be knowledgeable and wise, and fair with others, a good churchman. And so he can say, you know what? I like this. His character has been proven. As a pastor, I've often found myself sitting with people hurting beyond what seems bearable. With some of you, Look at the situation, and I found myself saying as I sit with you, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know why this is happening. But I know we can trust Him. I know we can trust Him. He's proved Himself over and over that is the expectation we rightly are to have of God. As His people, we can trust that He is acting for our good. Abraham is doing that here. Abraham knows what God has promised. He will also provide. That's his expectation of God. And so he trusts Him to be good to him as a friend. I don't know why this was ordained, but I know who ordained this. And that provides all the knowledge that we need. We so often want to know why this is happening. Or why this is required. But who is requiring this? And who is ordaining this is so much more important. Because who stands behind every why? When you get an answer to one why, that doesn't provide rest, it doesn't provide strength, it doesn't provide confidence for the next why. But knowing who 
provide strength and rest and comfort and confidence for every why that comes down the pike. We trust the heart behind the providence. That's the great temptation in times of trouble, isn't it? Especially in times of trouble. To trust that God's heart is not aimed at my good. That's the old lie. That's the lie that grabbed hold of Adam and Eve Eve in the garden. You can eat of all the fruit of all of the trees except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that serpent comes up and says, he's trying to keep something good from you. No. God has proven himself over and over to his people. We can expect him to be working for our good always. There's also expectation on God's side. It is that Abraham would be willing to sacrifice all for him. Friendship with God is costly, even as friendship with us is costly. This passage is not simply about trials. Depending on how you look at the life of Abraham, you could count up to 12 trials in the life of Abraham. So we don't need another kind of magnum opus trial to bring home the point that, look, there, the life of faith is filled with trials. No, I think there is a much more fundamental point here. And it is what God expects of those that are His. And that is that they are to be willing to sacrifice everything for Him. Job understood this. Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Habakkuk understood this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He can take everything. He can take my very life. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. We are to be willing to sacrifice all for Him. And that is what is being pressed home in this passage. It's meant to to tug at our emotions as we go through it. There's an emphasis throughout upon this father-son relationship. Father-son is mentioned in verse 2. In verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 12, in verse 13, in verse 16. Twelve times in 16 verses. We have only one recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac in all the Bible. and It's right here. And Isaac begins with, my father. And Abraham replies with, here I am, my son. And then you have the call itself. It is like God is piling term upon term to just drill it down into Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. In fact, it's the first time that love is even mentioned in the Bible. It's right here. Test is clear. Abram, you love your son. But do you love 
me more than you love your son. Abram, you treasure your son. You delight in your son. But am I your greatest treasure? And am I your greatest delight? And we could say, for Abram so loved God that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's an amazing scene, both for Isaac and for Abraham. They build an altar. They lay wood on the altar, and then Abram binds his son. The word that's used for Isaac in the text is a word that's often used of young men of boys in their late teenage years. And I think that's true here of Isaac. He is not a small child. He is a, he's a young man. I mean, he's, he's carrying wood up the mountain with, with his father. And Abraham binds him. And then he lays him on the altar on top of the wood. There's still no hesitation. Verse 10 and Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. He raises his knife in trust. And that trust was well placed. The angel of the Lord appears in voice from heaven and stops him, and we see provision with God. Abraham couldn't quite know how God was going to provide in this circumstance, but he knew that God would provide. He expected that. And God truly provides. A ram is placed in the thicket to take Isaac's place, and the angel says to him, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham believed God would provide, and he does. He's never a debtor to his people. Our faith is always, always well placed in him even when we don't understand, especially when we don't understand. Notice, though, the focus, the great conclusion in this text, the, the great point is, it's not Abraham's faith. It's not called that place. They don't rename it Abraham's faith. Abraham doesn't name it that. He calls it the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord of provision. There's a famous scene from the life of Martin Luther where he is with his wife, Katie, and they are sitting at the dinner table together, as they often did, and they are doing family devotions. And Martin Luther is reading this text, Genesis chapter 22. And Katie, at the end of him having read this text, she exclaimed, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. 
And Luther turned to his bride and he said, but Katie, he did. He did. He provides. He provides so that we might be his friends, friends with God. Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not do what his master, does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. God has provided. So you and I are not just taken from aliens and strangers and enemies of God to objects of His grace and mercy. We're not just that. We are now elevated to the place above cherubim and seraphim where we are friends of God. Friend of God. He has provided. Alexander White, the famous Presbyterian pastor from Edinburgh said this, he said, Abraham withheld not Isaac from his friend on one of the mountains of Moriah. And in the same country, 2,000 years after, God was not to be outdone by Abraham. And the seal of his friendship to Abraham and to his seed forever. He gives us all that he has and in turn, Ask that we give Him our all and all that we are to Him. Our God who provides is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of all of our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning that you are a God of great provision. You are a God from whom we can expect because your character is proven and it does not change. And so we pray that we would be those who walk in faith with our eyes set upon you. And that it forms us and that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. Honoring you with all that we are. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.